0: So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the July 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation, this time a point-counterpoint. So my first guest is Dr. Hans Lee, the assistant professor from Johns Hopkins University in the section of interventional pulmonary. He's here to discuss his article, Point, Should Small-Bore, Small-bore Plural Catheter Placement Be the Preferred Initial Management for Malignant pleural Effusions? Yes. Hans, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And then our next guest is Dr. Malcolm DeCamp. From the, uh, he's a professor of surgery and chief of the Division of Thoracic Surgery at Northwestern Memorial Hospital here in Chicago. He'll be discussing his article, Counterpoint, Should Small-Bore Pleural Catheter Placements Be the Preferred Initial Management for Malignant Pleural Effusions? No. Mac, thanks for coming on the line and, and talking with us today.
1: Kyle, thanks uh, for uh, arranging this thing. Pleasure to be here. All right, guys. Well, you know, just as a way of background for our listeners, let's just
0: set the stage and, and I, you know, I guess some people might think, you know, really, there's a controversy here. Is there? Like, how big of a problem is it to... Deal with malignant pleural effusions. Are we seeing more and more of these, or is it just this kind of you know a, a fringe issue that occurs occasionally on someone that slips through all the screening protocols we have for all the different malignancies, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Just give us just some background, uh, both of you, if you don't mind, to help kind of set the stage of of why we're even having this discussion about how to best deal with them.
2: Uh, sure. Uh, so with uh, malignant pleural effusions, we, we're certainly still seeing quite a bit of this, uh, unfortunately. Uh, with lung cancer, we're, we're seeing, uh, diseases, mostly in the, in the later stage of the, the disease. Uh, and oftentimes, sometimes malignant pleural fusions is really the only presenting symptom, uh, for, for these patients. Um, on the other hand, also, it represents advanced disease, regardless of, uh, the type of malignancy, whether it's outside of the, uh, outside of the lungs as well.
1: And it, you know, I think it's, a, a very, unfortunately, a very common presentation for, uh, uh, undiagnosed cancer um and with improvements in chemotherapy and targeted therapy and precision medicine where we're trying to take advanced cancer and turn it into a chronic disease that uh, we can all live with i would predict that we're going to see more of this uh we're also using more uh, cross sectional imaging and we can detect pleural effusions uh, uh even uh at their earlier stage, where perhaps there's even a preemptive opportunity to do something about this disease. So I think it's a very common um, and probably, uh, as we'll talk about later, perhaps not as well studied, uh, you know, oncologic problem. Uh, we're going to speak today mostly about just the malignant pleural effusions. But uh, and we also have a lot of different new technologies to bring to bear on it. So I think it's a, a timely timely point counterpoint session
0: well and i think there's a, obviously so that kind of goes into the next point because i you know i have a uh, a you know interventional pulmonologist on the phone and a thoracic surgeon on the phone so for, clearly from two different uh, lines of work and yet uh, at the same time two groups that clearly you know complement each other and work very closely together um, at both institutions and in other institutions around the country so is, is you know and, and then let's face it everything malignant these days rightfully so is a is a multimodality approach a, a, you know a, a tumor board based approach if you will So is the discussion on how best to manage these, are there true kind of questions and core, you know, uh, definitive data that needs to be explored that that sort of, you know, add to each of your arguments for, you know, big tube or small tube, or are we just dealing with maybe some core, for lack of a better word, philosophical differences, if you will, between the
1: two uh, professions? Well, Hans, do you want to go first? <laughs> sure. He sure. Just so, set, he's just setting you up, easy.
0: Hans."
2: He's just saying, <laughs> <setting laughs> uh, No, you know,
1: I'll say. Frank we has have, its we privileges. A, <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so I'll start with saying that we have a fantastic relationship with uh, with thoracic surgery uh, at at our institution. Of course. Um, and and I, I don't think it's it's really a, a special a specialty specific issue. I think uh whoever can uh, best serve the uh the patient uh at the uh, at the earliest convenience of the patient i i think uh that's probably uh the best situation um uh, yes. i think either which way whenever we look at malignant pleural fusion uh this this usually represents regardless of what the uh, uh primary uh malignancy is it represents uh, an end stage uh, or advanced uh stage uh malignancy and so, you know, palliation is, is usually primarily the goal for managing these malignant pleural fusions. So, uh, so if, if we can best serve the patients uh, by whatever specialty or whatever means, I think the uh, the quickest and the easiest for the patient, then uh, I would say that that's probably uh, my preference in, in, in the approach. No, and there's certainly
1: no argument there. I think it's uh, a—whenever you're going to frame a debate, you have to, at some point, put some— uh, parameters around it. Uh, I right. think in reality, patients present to us in, in various degrees of of assessment. So uh, they either have the incidental finding of a pleural effusion that may not be terribly uh, symptomatic, or they may have uh, significant dyspnea, they may have a known malignancy, and this is just part of the course of their disease. Um, they may come with just a, a, a new effusion and uh, and need both diagnosis and palliative therapy. Uh, our presumption, you know, is a lot of these are malignant. Um, frankly, some of the patients that present to either of our, our groups, uh, aren't, aren't always well characterized. And that's why I think there's a great role for the multidisciplinary evaluation. And as Kyle knows, and Hans probably knows since I worked with his partner, you know, I have a, very close working relationship with interventional pulmonary physicians so i think they're an integral part of the multidisciplinary care of 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 cancer
0: Oh, and that's good. I mean, I obviously asked that question to ensure that from our listeners' perspective, this is a, uh, you know, there's a, this is a very large tent uh, for room for all of us. And I think that's the key point. And I just, I wanted to be able to re echo that from, you know, both of you to hear that, you know, this is, uh, if you're not currently playing nice with your thoracic surgeon or your interventional pulmonologist, you need to start doing
1: so. (laughs) Absolutely. But I mean, I I think if you look at the common malignancies we take care of, um, you know, let's say, let's just pick on uh, lung cancer and breast cancer, you know, Right. Both uh, both of those, if they're uh, causing uh, pleural effusion and, and have documented malignancy, they are stage four advanced disease things. But uh, certainly in breast, and hopefully we're moving in that direction. In lung, there's a lot of new tools to help uh, these patients and treat their their tumors. So. Um, I think historically we've there's been a lot of nihilism around, well, this is the end stage. You just need to do something quick and and uh, make them feel better because they're not going to live that long. But certainly, I think breast cancer in the last 10 years, I've treated that disease much more aggressively from a palliative standpoint because there's so many second and third line opportunities for those patients. And we're just starting to see that in lung cancer with targeted and therapy and precision medicine.
0: So let's frame this debate then.
1: Small bore. What does that mean?
0: <laughs> Hans, what do you guys mean? What, what does small bore mean at Hopkins? How about that?
2: Sure. So, um, you know, I, I guess uh, part of the confusion with uh, the definition of small bore versus large bore is that uh, there have been a lot of different studies and what the authors have characterized small bore varies between paper to paper. Uh, but I, I think most people, uh, would, uh, would, would agree that 14 French or or smaller is a small bore, and uh, maybe 20 French and larger mm-hmm. will be a large bore. Um, and somewhere between 14th and 20, that 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 starts to be a little bit of an ambiguous zone. But okay. uh, at our institution, we we use uh, primarily 14 French when we refer to a uh, small bore. I
1: think that's fair, and I think we pointed out, in, and the readers will see, that there, I think there's a previous debate about tunnel pleural catheters, which I think are a very effective tool, and they're a tweener, is they're actually 15 or 15 and a half French, and um, that speaks to a little bit more of the um, the nuances of treatment. I think they have a role, but we we try to define small bore very much like Kahn's uh, just did at 14 or less French and anything right. so, else would be large.
0: So, you know, there's, there's, um, help our readers out here. There's obviously an assumption that uh, smaller seems to uh, be clearly, you know, more, um, you know, there's a clear assumption. This this will hurt less, uh, patients will like it more, you know, et cetera. Do we have good data that supports that smaller is definitively preferred by our patients?
2: Well, I, I think there's, uh, there's some data. Um, suggesting that uh, the small bore or the percutaneous uh insertion of the uh, of the uh, catheter uh, may be more comfortable. Uh, I think if we just take a step back and intuitively kind of if we were given the option of one of two sizes I, I think most of us would uh, would reach out for the uh, for the small bore one. Um you know assuming that they are equally uh, uh efficacious.
1: Oh, that right right up, and that's right? definitely the, that's the big important question too. And I, I think, um you know, I think the, the extremes of both of these sizes are where, where people get into trouble. Cause I think 8 French is awfully hard to maintain patency of kinks and things. And I think that surgeons and, and standard chest tubes have gotten a bad rap because they think everyone gets a 32 French or a 36 French chest tube. Um, like you might see placed in the trauma bay for someone shot or stabbed. Um that's not, Really, what we're talking about here. None of us are, I think we're all in touch with wanting to be patient centered. Um, yeah. The question is, um, are, you know, are we going to have, you know, complications or hassles, if clinical hassles, they might not be complications, you know, of uh, tube patency? Um, it kind of depends also on size and location and. Distribution is it loculated or free flowing? So there's a lot of nuance about this, and that's why I think it takes good clinical judgment and communication to get it right. So Hans, go ahead and frame your argument, then. Um, you know.
0: Basically, with, without reading your paper word for word, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead and help our readers out in the sense of what you know. Why um, uh, you and and Dr. Feller-Kopman in, in your article point out that you know small bores catheters should be the preferred initial management uh, for malignant pleural effusions. Sure,
2: absolutely. Um, but before before I get to that, um, I, I just want to point out which w- this this topic isn't uh, isn't black and white. I think what Matt has. Uh, uh, also pointed out, uh, but in, in addition, you know, in the past we always thought of small-bore catheters associated with a kind of a percutaneous uh, insertion approach, uh, but, you know, in reality today we can place, uh, you know, even large-bore tubes uh, percutaneously as well. So it may not just be necessarily just the size, but uh, like Matt said, there's different technologies and, and different ways to, to do things that we had done in the past. Um, so these are some questions that remain unanswered, and, uh, and I think it's timely that we discuss this. But kind of getting back to the uh, to the debate, um, you know, I think there's uh, been several prospective studies looking at uh, small bore catheters and the use of malignant fusions. I think most people would agree that for the most part, draining uh, simple effusion uh, doesn't necessarily require really uh, a large or even medium-sized uh, catheter. Uh, i guess the the debate boils down to what happens with chemical pluristics where uh, the catheters can potentially get uh, get clogged and uh, affect the efficacy of the procedure um, and looking at the, some recent prospective studies like the time two trial as well as other prospective studies where they use smaller uh, catheters 12 french 10 french catheters uh, they really had you know decent success rates with pluristics and uh, minimal issues with with clogging uh, the only caveat to that is that they definitely flush their catheters several times a day. So it's definitely a little bit more uh, labor intensive than large bore catheters. Uh, but I think if we get back to the, the point of treating malignant pro-effusions, which is palliative, uh, let's try to potentially offer, uh, these patients, uh, the least invasive therapy, the, the most comfortable procedure, uh, with, uh, with equal effic- efficacy.
0: Uh, during the both papers, both of you essentially quote the British Thoracic Society guidelines at least, you know, fairly uh, as, as being kind of prominent in the in the decision process. But what is very interesting is the two different takes that you both have. And in, in particular, Dr. DeCamp, you um, uh, kind of dissect apart the foundation for the BTS guidelines. And I'm curious if if you want to jump into those so that that uh, that
1: you and and Hans can go back and forth on that yeah i'm a little surprised uh having delved into that literature that um that the b t s you know uh, uh assumed those trials as the evidence to come up with uh, recommendations and you know i think in this era of evidence based medicine if you look at in detail at those three trials that form the Sort of foundation for their recommendations. The largest trial is 102 patients, but and it's called it was labeled a a prospective trial, but it's actually a retrospective review, um, which you know is a bit of a problem, and um, that you know there was there's some inherent biases when you when you move into the retrospective arena. Um, Not all of them even had documented malignancy. So so the largest data set that the BTS, you know, uh, calls out, you know, I'm not sure completely uh, homogeneous population. The other two trials were prospective, but they're small, 140 patients, 121 patients, um, and they had some issues. you know, and they compared a quite a large chest tube, thirty two French, to a very small eight French catheter. Um they used uh a povidone iodine as the pleuridesis agent, which is not something that is commonly used. Um, so they and they looked at uh some radiographic uh, uh changes uh as well as symptoms, whereas their the, the final study, the Clemenson study with only twenty patients, um, looked at uh radiographic um changes which really weren't very different, and again, use tetracycline. So in the US here, we we can't get tetracycline. Um, Most places are using talc, and anybody who's worked with talc knows it doesn't go in solution. It's a slurry, and so uh, it's potentially problematic with really small tubes. So I completely agree with Hans. We ought to use the smallest catheter that allows us to get the job done. My only point and 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 my co author Colin Gillespie, is that I don't think that the data is very robust and it is an important clinical problem, and we think it ought to be subjected to a somewhat more rigorous um trial is I personally have some equipoise about it. The other interesting issue about this is that these small board trials um were hampered because a large number of the patients in the trial were dead within a month or two and that's not, I'm not blaming the investigators, um, there was a large randomized trial and surgery uh, published by Carolyn Dressler a few years back that randomized patients to video thoracoscopy versus bedside, chest tube, and talc pleurodesis, and while there wasn't a huge difference between the groups, what we both, what we all found out is that we were very poor about selecting patients with long term. Progn- you know, <laughs> prognosis, we had a large number of patients that unfortunately passed away um before the um the first endpoint, so it seemed as clinicians we needed to be a little bit more careful about who we enroll in trials and and again go back to what we talked about at the outset that we wanna make sure that we maintain our palliative perspective um and and do the right thing for the patient. So th- those are that's Colin and our my argument is that not that small is bad, it's just that the data that is promulgated about it is kind of um D minus C in the evidence based world. Hans, what do you think? Um
2: well, so you know, I, I agree with uh, Matt and Colin that uh, uh the data is, is is certainly not robust. Um there are certainly no head to head comparison or randomized study between small bore versus large bore. Um and, uh, and really to, um to the, to the credit of Matt and uh, Colin, I think they illustrate a very hey, nice hun- article. Hans, I'll just get Malcolm's
0: uh nickname is Mac, not Matt. Sorry, I think I mispronounced. It v- okay. I totally just wanted to,
1: like, wanted to correct oh. you. <laughs> my like McDonald's or truck or any of those.
0: <laughs> no, I just wanted to let Hans know. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your argument.
2: No, no, not not a problem. Um, but uh <coughs> now, I, I do think there there probably is a place for. Uh, for large bore and, uh, and small bore. Um, that hasn't been well characterized yet in the, in the literature. And so I, I agree. There probably will be clinical scenarios where maybe a large bore might be more appropriate than uh, a small bore. Uh, I think especially in maybe the non-malignant pleural fusion where efficacy, uh, is more important than, than palliation. Um, but I think, uh, because of our, our, our intuitive thoughts that the bigger is better, I think the, uh, the mindset had primarily been, let's try to put in a, a large bore size whatever size that may be. Uh, but I think, uh, as a result of a lot of, uh, studies that have come out using small bore, including the time two study, which came out after the BTS guidelines, um, the efficacy of, uh, small bore catheters, 12 French, uh, catheters have uh, have surprised us all with uh, how well they actually uh, can perform. Um, so I'm not sure whether one is better or the other. I don't think there's any data to support that. Uh, but I think certainly uh, small-bore catheters uh, can get the job done. Now, they may not always be the right decision uh, to go with, uh, but I think it's something that uh, uh, we, we should strongly consider when we're treating these patients. So let me ask both of you then, for,
0: if nothing else, for guidance for our listeners. Um, you know, as so we talk about there may be factors that may have you choose one versus the other in the clinical scenario for in front of you. Could you, could you highlight a scenario then for either of you where you'd say, no, nah, this is fine, I'll put a small bore in and, you know, and, and move towards pleuridesis? or, you know, gosh, this person, I'm going to have to put a 20 French in or, or, or whatever um, because uh, of factors X and Y. Is there a scenario that you could outline that might highlight your thought process as to why you would one or the other because as you said at the beginning it's not a black-and-white issue you know it's not like there's no chest tube greater than 14 French at Hopkins and there's no 10 French laying around Northwestern you know I mean you clearly both use both but you know and the key question was initial management so um, can you outline some scenarios either of you uh,
1: again I'll let my colleague go first if
2: he'd like or I'll jump <laughs> in <laughs> yeah absolutely so so last week I, I had a typical patient uh, that rolled into the emergency room, uh, large, uh, pleural fusion, basically filling up the right hemithorax, uh, with some, uh, history of, uh, uh, of malignancy. Uh, nothing, uh, nothing definite diagnosed with malignant pleural fusion. Uh, so, uh, we placed a small bore, uh, chest tube. Uh, it was simple. It drained very easily. Uh, we realized that uh, from the cytology and the fluid studies that it was malignant. Uh, we were allowed to leave a small catheter, no bigger than a thoracentesis catheter and allow uh, the relief of the dyspnea from removing the effusion and then also assessing whether the lung was expandable or not over the next 24 hours. Uh, so we found out that it was malignant, the lung did expand. Uh, and with the catheter in place without having to subject the patient to another procedure, uh, we were able to, uh, instill a, a talc, uh, slurry and the patient had a successful pleuridesis. Um, so not uncommon, you know, it, it was more than just, uh, you know, doing a, a pleuridesis procedure. Uh, it was about making a diagnosis as well as assessing whether the lung was expandable okay
1: and i i i think that is is fantastic and if we could predict ahead of time which patients were going to have such a great result then then we would be further along than we are today. Um, the, the, the counter to that scenario is someone who's had a prior thoracentesis that, for whatever reason, didn't drain well. Then, um, and, and uh, putting a, a tiny catheter in that situation brings up issues of whether it's loculated, whether it's more protein-rich, whether it has more than one consistency, and having a larger catheter allows you to manage that. I think. You know, again, we get to the discussion of large and I don't like really big chest tubes. I don't use anything in the thirties and even in my regular surgical practice other than real trauma. I, I stick in the twenties. Um, but I don't like kinking and repositioning things. Um, so it uh, allows us to, uh, do other manipulations and intrapleural fibrinolitics to improve drainage. And again, we're just like you said, Hans. We're interested in not only the, the adequate drainage and and assessment of lung and getting that lung re-expanded, but if if we don't get pleural pleural apposition, then it you know it doesn't really matter, and uh, right. no pleurodesis is going to work. And that's a good situation for a tunneled catheter. Um, so it, it's. Uh, Again, I just think we don't have good criteria and maybe we ought to step back and um, look more carefully at you guys that are experts in ultrasound evaluation of the pleural space and, you know, and get a sense. When I see free-flowing pleural fluid, I think a nice small tube is fine. When I see loculations, I start to be a little bit more concerned. If the patient's had prior surgery, I don't think um, small catheters are as likely to work. So it's, Like a lot of things in medicine, what's the pretest probability that your proposed intervention is going to be helpful and not uh, be complicated? You weigh that against the the morbidity, it's a little more uncomfortable for sure. But as you also pointed out earlier, we're getting better and better at placing larger tubes with less trauma to patients, so it doesn't have to be a a big deal. There's always exceptions when you have a a large... uh, or more obese patient, that's that's more difficult. Actually, in both arenas, a large tube or a small tube can be more difficult. Right?
0: Back in the scenario that Hans described, you know, they're pretty straightforward and not, not an uncommon scenario. Would would you have defaulted to a you know 16, 18, 20 French in that clinical scenario?
1: I I'm, I don't like the eight French catheters. I don't like them for pneumothoraces. I don't like them for effusions. But I'm I. As you get up in the 12, 14 range, I'm actually fine with that. And, um, I don't think, uh, as we said from the outset, I don't think this is a one size fits all, uh, right. a situation. So I, I think the smaller tube is absolutely fine as long as it will remain patent and allows you to distribute the, you know, if the, if we're forced and the lung does expand or the majority of it is expands, then I think we, um, can and do this. I think that's the advantage of having clinicians, whether they're interventional pulmonologists or surgeons involved, and sometimes our, our interventional radiology colleagues aren't as diligent about following these catheters after they go in and, and troubleshooting them and flushing them and doing all those things that you need to do a little more frequently to keep small bore catheters patent. I think if you're devoted to, to that then and you're going to you know, do all that extra care um i think they I think they're fine um it its again gets back to the in in the in the clinical scenario in front of you what's the likelihood that you're going to get the job done with that small catheter and that example he showed I, I i would i think that's a good one and that's one I would ask Colin to try to fix and not involve us at all
0: terrific Hans, what else do you think? You, what, or I maybe mean, both of you, as we're you know been talking for a little bit here. What haven't we discussed? What are we missing?
1: Well, I think the time two trial is a little misleading, and I, I, it doesn't re, it doesn't convince me any more than the stuff we talked about earlier that this you know time two is really a tunnel plural catheter versus chest tubes, and um, there there was no clear winner. Um, they got the hospital sooner, but they had they were. Equivalent in terms of relief of dyspnea and improvement in quality of life, and they had more frequent adverse events with the use of tunnel plu catheters so um you know that's not a home run, and it it doesn't convince me that we have a clear uh winner in terms of what to do but i I think it's not the the, the tubes problem I think it's the fact that these patients are all there's a lot of variables in terms of. You know, how, how moribund they are or how sick they are or what their life expectancy is, where they are in their treatment, what else, you know, what the oncologists want to get in next. Uh, is it purely palliative? I, I push our breast oncologists to let us take care of these pleural processes early and get them pleurodiesed and then, and then let them take care of them with chemotherapy. Um, because I think they, again, as I said earlier, they have a lot of treatment options. Um as opposed to the patient who's clearly at the 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 end, where perhaps we ought to just drain them you know and and see them back in a week or two and see if they need to be drained again at least that's what the data would say if if thirty a third of them have passed away in a month, I'm not sure that either of us need to be putting tubes in those people
2: right no, <laughs> I absolutely yeah. agree. Uh, the, the only reason why I bring up the, the time two trial, uh, is because, uh, uh, they use a 12 French, a 12 French yep. catheter, uh, as, uh, as their, uh, chest tube, uh, arm. Um uh, I, I agree with you. I, I don't know if there's any, uh, if there's a clear winner between, um, via chest tube versus, uh, an IPC. Um, but I, I think the, uh, at least from my standpoint, that, that study at least illustrates uh, that it can be used for, uh, talc pleuridesis, uh, successfully. Now, I, the question is, and I don't think anyone truly knows this answer, is whether talc slurry, uh, is better via a, a larger tube, larger than 12, uh, you know, compared to a 12 French catheter. Um and if, if there is a benefit, um I, I wonder how much more of a benefit there will be. I, I, I suspect that there is. Uh, but if you're looking, you know, from in 85% to 90% efficacy, uh, I'm not sure, at least in the malignant pleural fusion population, whether that's that much of a benefit, um, compared to, uh, using a large bore. Now, I think, um, you know, future studies will have to kind of tease out whether, uh, there really is a difference, uh, in efficacy and, uh, and also with, with comfort right i think you're you're exactly right because i think
1: our zeal to get a statistically relevant outcome kind of ignores the whether whether it's clinically relevant and right. and you, you may be just exactly right and i have complete equipoise about doing that study and comparing you know 12 to 20 or 12 to 24 um, and i'd be happy to but i think you know i'd then my the, my clinical judgment piece is that you know that that younger breast cancer patient you know I want to work a little harder to get her a good outcome a good a good radiographic and obviously we all want symptomatic benefit outcome because I think they, the oncologists have more tools right now that that keep those folks going. So, um, but uh, but it's still in the context of the, the counterpoint point-counterpoint debate, I'd have equipoise about doing that kind of study. Uh, We'd have to think carefully about what the right endpoints are, not only for statistics, but also for does it make sense from the patient's perspective. And, you know, the new clinical trials are looking at more patient-reported outcomes than, than we have traditionally looked at. As the patient who's receiving palliation,
0: in the end, that's all that matters the most, right? That should be it's all the care. We, yeah. That should that should be the primary outcome. You know, happier patient, uh, yeah, quality of life, and, and yeah. yeah, because we're we're talking about, about this, palliation right? here. Yeah. Well guys, I think this has been a fantastic discussion. I wanna leave it open to see any other specific points or comments that either of you wanna make. Um, you know, if our readers haven't picked up the articles yet, um I strongly uh or if our listeners haven't picked up the article, please do. Um they both actually make really strong points and, and uh you know, actually a, a really nice review of the of the relevant literature to this. I think it also highlights for any uh fellows listening, if you're looking for a research project, I think there's an area that's uh ripe for uh exploration. <laughs> I, I,
1: I appreciate the opportunity and, and I think, you know, for, from the editorial staff and yourself, uh, just that asked us to have this debate, I think they understood at the outset that we were probably more in agreement than in disagreement, but for the academic, uh, exercise, we tried to, uh, fulfill our, our prescribed roles. Right. But, uh, at the end of the day,
2: we're all colleagues. And, Right. No, absolutely. I, I agree. I think we're more alike than different. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just glad that uh, we have an avenue to kind of just bring out food for thought for um, our colleagues. Absolutely.
0: No, oh, guys, this was fantastic as as, uh, as expected <laughs> and uh, had quite an excellent read and then a very excellent discussion. So I want to thank you both for your time and uh, uh, both of you have a great evening. All right. You too.
2: Great. Right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Go Hawks. Go Hawks. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy the weather. (laughs) Bye bye. Take care. (laughs) Bye Bye bye.